Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Atul Gawande is a doctor, professor, best-selling author, and a New Yorker staff writer. He's also one of the most incisive thinkers on medicine and our healthcare system. So I sat down with him this week to talk about the raging coronavirus, the next steps in health reform, and his own truly remarkable body of work. Here's that conversation. Atul Gawande, it's it's great to see you again. Couldn't be at a more consequential time, certainly when it comes to the issue of health. Uh, so welcome, first of all. Thank you for having me, David. It's it's uh, good to be on, on this end of, of listening to your show. <laughs> well, uh, you know, my interest is in great stories, and yours is one of them, but, and we'll, we'll get to that. I want to get to, uh, first, where we are today. You said in May that you were concerned that states were uh, opening up too quickly. And now we see the harvest of those decisions. Where are we in this COVID-19 journey right now from your perspective? We're not in a good place. Summer is a time when people are generally outdoors and that we knew this would be a time you would be expected to be damping down the virus and have some time to work on it in preparation for the likelihood that there'd be a jump in the fall. Um, but the reality is, is that just we, we've, uh, we've opened prematurely and that we're in the midst of a surge, 40 of 50 states. Infections are increasing. We're at the highest level of COVID infection. Uh, deaths are not, uh, have not risen anywhere in parallel to that because it's been primarily among the young. And so we're fortunate in that way. But the hospitals are filling in hotspots. And this is a real danger point, and we haven't done anything yet to even dial back against what we're dealing with now. So at this moment, we're heading for the need for a do-over. Meaning a, a complete shutdown. Uh, yes, I think that um, unless we are changing the path we're on by actually getting behaviors into place, in every county where the hospital capacity is hitting uh, its limit, you have to shut down or your hospitals will be completely overwhelmed. Uh, you know, it, it, the hospitals are getting hit now. The cases are rising. That means in two weeks, it's going to be even worse. So if they're at 95, 98% capacity for their beds and their ICUs, this means now we're in a place where those counties have to lock down or they're going to be, they're going to be wiped out. And, uh, and, you know, that's, just a few hot spots here and there, but a week or two from now, uh, we're going to be even in a worse place, and those are the discussions that we're going to be having. 
You know, the president said the other day, I, I, would, I wish I could have been a fly on your wall when you heard the words, you know, that the virus was not all that consequential. And what was the phrase that he used was 99% harmless. How'd you react when you heard those words? Well, the, the problem is that the president and, uh, and many of the leaders who've been enabling him have been failing over and over and over again. So he says something outrageous every day and you become numb to it. Um, here, here's the critical part. The most important tool we have in public health is communication. You have to, and, and, and it's actually equally important in medicine. You have to be able to help people understand what is the danger and what do you do about it. And at every turn, this president has undermined what we know works. The message is really simple. We have learned in hospitals where we've been going to work every day in the epidemic, in the pandemic, and have avoided infections, that if you have hygiene, distancing, mandatory masks, and screen everybody for symptoms so that they stay home and get tested, that shuts the virus down. That formula we have known now for several weeks, going on, you know, for, for more than several weeks, it's been a couple months now. And, um, and where the states have executed on that, they've been really successful. But the president and, um, and much of the Republican Party, not all of it, um, has undermined that exact message, fought it, resisted it, and actively ridiculed people who are following it. And that has put us in the situation we're in. And it's simply not going to get better. It, it, is, it is extremely hard to succeed when you have leadership uh, of the country pushing in the, in the opposite direction. And so when he said that, I just, you know, put my hands on my face again and just said, you know, we have more and more Republicans coming around to talk about mandatory masks. He has reluctantly said the right words a couple of times. And, uh, and I think more and more of the Republican Party have to make this no longer a partisan matter. And yet he's had uh, several public events in the last few weeks in which there's been no social distancing and virtually no one was wearing a mask. Less than 10 percent of people were wearing masks. Now, you know, we've seen Herman Cain, who was at this event in Tulsa, hospitalized with COVID. The president's uh, son's girlfriend tested positive uh, for COVID. And I guess we can expect, sadly, I hope Otherwise, that there are going to be a bunch of cases that are going to flow from 3,000 kids in Phoenix, for example, in a megachurch, cheek to jowl, no masks, uh, with the president cheering them on. But there's another element of this. You talk about the flow of information and how important it is for people to know what to do. And obviously, the president sets an example, but the White House has also mothballed, to a large degree, Tony Fauci, Deborah Burks the public health experts who the country had become accustomed to hearing from uh, at the height of the crisis in the spring. And it's very clear. I mean, the reporting is very clear that they just don't want people out there who are going to conflict with the narrative that the worst is over and that uh, we can open up again and we're coming back. That is is really frightening. Yeah. Um, the message that the White House uh, in, in the last few days has been encouraging and wants the country to come along with is that we can live with this. We can live with this pandemic. Um, you know, think about the distance that we've come. I mean, first of all, those public health leaders are uh, 
actively putting out messages that are that contradict that idea that we can just live with this because the reality is we can't just live with this. You're, you're, we're going to be hitting uh, 200,000 deaths by, uh, by the fall. And just living with this means hitting that point and then accelerating onward to 300,000 deaths uh, and further. Um, it's not a viable way to think about this. One of the best explanations that I, or, or discussions I heard was with um, my colleague at the School of Public, Harvard School of Public Health, Mark Lipsitz, who um, said, you know, he thinks that our metaphor of are we in the first wave or is this a second wave, waves are the wrong metaphor because it implies that it just goes up and comes down. He said, this is a fire. The fire is spreading. You can't just live with this. You actually have to do something about the fire or it will just go further and further until we're all attacked. We've done really well up here in Massachusetts uh, and have had the rates go down and down and down. But that fire is going to hit us too, um, unless you have a national strategy and you don't think you can live with it. You talk about the number of deaths relative to COVID. What is the impact on these health systems in a city like Houston now, Phoenix, Los Angeles, where they're being uh, overrun by cases. What does it mean to have the ICUs filled up uh, for people who have other health needs and also need critical care? Yeah, so what we learned in the, um, in the, in the first peak that we started to get in, in April was that people, um, people could not get access to the medical care that they needed uh, that the partly because they were scared of coming into the healthcare system, partly because um, you know you're shutting down access to uh, as hospitals fill, you lose access to elective surgery. And when we say elective surgery, what we re- mean is surgery that's not emergent but can wait. But those are things like breast biopsies. It's getting cardiac caths to address a blocked vessel in your heart. And over time, what we've seen is there is a surge, 75% of the rise in excess deaths is because of COVID directly, and 25% is because of people with heart attacks, strokes, um, uh, appendicitis, that they're not getting addressed and, uh, and in some cases uh, perishing from uh, when they don't come in. So what Houston is going through, what other hospital systems are going through in the, will be going through in the weeks to come, will be a replay where we'll learn that lesson all over again. And it's a terrible lesson to learn. When we, when we consider the toll of COVID, that really doesn't include, that number is just people who are found to have died from the effects of COVID-19. It doesn't include the people who may die as a result of lack of attention that they needed or care that they needed because of the pressures of the crisis. Yeah, one of the best communities that got studied out of this early on was um, in Bergamo, Italy, that Bergamo region that got hit by the virus. Um, They lost in the space of about two months, 0.5%, one in 200 people in the entire population. And, uh, And the vast majority were because of the disease directly, but it was very clear there were also um, an additional range of people who weren't getting access to the health system when they needed it. And then we haven't even begun to measure 
all those people who've gone three months without a without getting their uh, their blood pressure or a diabetes check, the people whose um, HIV medicines may not have been uh, uh, renewed, um, and all of those other problems where people were either scared to get into the system or the system wasn't able to see them. What do we know about this virus now that we've had six months of experience with it that we didn't know six months ago? And how has it changed the way medicine is, is responding to it? And does that have anything to do with the reduction in deaths? Yeah, there's, um, there's a lot that we have learned. Um, uh, almost too much to name, but I'll, I'll name a few quick things. Number one, uh, that 40% spreads with, uh, from people who are not showing any symptoms at all. Uh, and that that is a danger point. Uh, number two, that masks really work <laughs> and make a big difference in lowering the spread of infection. Number three, we have some uh, drugs now that we know when you get uh, severely ill and in the hospital make a big difference. Probably the biggest difference comes from uh, using steroids. Uh, dexamethasone uh, lowered the death rate uh, substantially, um, uh, well over 40% in uh, the population of people taking dexamethasone. And we're seeing that um, there are now uh, approaches to combine that with other treatments that could get that, that death rate down lower. Right now, I don't think the death rate is lower uh, because of the treatments. I think it's been because it's been younger people who um, are able to withstand the onslaught. Many uh, people will still be admitted to the hospital, will still need oxygen uh, to get through this disease, but may not be uh, in danger of death. It's an important message because, you know, young people tend to think of themselves as indestructible. We saw that in the flood of people into bars and beaches across the country during these holiday weekends. And that is a very dangerous attitude because uh, you're not immune just because you're young. You may have a better chance of surviving, but you also have a pretty good chance of going through hell if you get an active version of this. That's right. It's a smaller percentage, but you take a walk through my hospital where we still have people lingering who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s on ventilators. Uh, and, uh, you know, just yesterday, um, a Broadway actor named uh, Nick Cordroy yeah. died, died at the age of 41, no pre-existing conditions, admitted on March 30th to the hospital on a ventilator by April 1. He had too many strokes. He had his right leg amputated, permanent lung damage, septic shock, and then he died yesterday uh, from this disease and, you know, leaving a one-year-old son and his, and his wife. This is not, uh, as the president tried to say, this is, you know, a little more harmless. than the flu. This is harmless. Uh, this, is a, this is devastating. It is, it is worse than the flu. Um, and, uh, and I think the vast majority of the country completely understands that, but you cannot mobilize everybody without leadership. Yeah. Yeah. It is uh, infuriating to hear some of these kids, and not just kids, older people as well, who say, I'm healthy, I'm going to be fine, I'm not worried about this. But this really requires you worrying about other people as well. As you point out, 40% of the people who don't have symptoms uh, are the ones who pass along this virus, and the person you pass it along to may not be as lucky as you. You know, the whole point of masks, in certain ways, it's a great metaphor for 
the Trumpian philosophy, which is uh, very much about take what you can. It's sort of a Darwin, a social Darwinian view that, you know, it's a jungle out there and you take what you can and worry about yourself. And that's a very dangerous way of thinking in the midst of a virus like this. Well, I just, I'm, I'm going to disagree just a little bit in the sense that um, the polls indicate that, that this is actually understood by 80 plus percent of uh, the country that to be dangerous and they're worried, right? Yeah, you're and, right, you're right. Um, and, you know, young people know the facts, but do they drive too fast? Do they drink too much? Are they reckless? Like, yeah. they haven't formed their frontal lobes yet. <laughs> you know, like, we, we, we've we all got our, you know, uh, experience with our teenage years and, and <laughs> you know, the expectation that that, um, that it's just their failure, not that you're saying that, but, but, but the reality of this is we know how to get uh, communities of people, including the young people, doing the right thing and, yes. having, and, and making sure that you know, not their, their actions match their knowledge. It requires being tough sometimes, mandating masks, asking you know, that, uh, that, that there be consequences if you're putting other people in harm's way. There is a loud, very small minority who think that freedom means freedom to infect people. And that's a crazy form of libertarianism even libertarians don't believe in. So I, You're right. you know, I, I really think it's because it is a point of view held by the president that he has made space in the world for and continually undermines all of the other obvious messages. You know, the danger is all coming from the top of the leadership heap there, here. You've talked about how phenomenal it is the pace of science around finding a vaccine or trying to find a vaccine for this. It's proceeding at a pace that is really unheard of before, and there are a hundred different entities that are pursuing it. And you've been optimistic about the expediting of this process and where it might lead. But even with that, uh, even with that, you've said, we're talking, we're looking about a couple of years into the future, or at least from the beginning of the virus, to where this is where a vaccine is tested, approved, and deployed on a massive scale. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a couple of th things to say here. Number one, um, this is an example of something the administration got right. And Operation Warp Speed, Anthony Fauci has been leading it, and they have driven investment in uh, into the space to get manufacturing happening in parallel, even before vaccines come out of clinical trial. That means that there will be millions of doses ready if um, one of the clinical trials from at least five contenders out there uh, turn, out to, turn out to be positive um, if, in the fall. And that means that there will be millions of doses rolling if those are successful. If those are not, they've built the manufacturing capacity so that some of the other kinds of vaccines could be there, and then you can get those going at the millions. However, we don't know, is it going to take one booster? Is it going to take two boosters to, to get the effect? Is it going to be partially effective or totally effective? And then scaling up the delivery so that um, uh, all Americans and, you know, 7 billion people plus around the world actually get access to this. Um, there has, there's been no game plan that, um, that has really been thought through for how, who gets it first, how you distribute, how you move it out, and how you recognize the fact that there are going to be many more people who won't get it for months while there may be some early people who get it. You know, ideally it's 
probably going to be healthcare workers, then it might be your, uh, your oldest populations who are at greatest risk that you begin rolling it out. In the meantime, yes, this will be, uh, it'll be a miracle if we do this in two years. It's, it, that, that is unheard of. It's never been uh, an accomplishment that's happened at mass distribution scale. Um, you know, it's been a 20-year-plus process of rolling out the polio vaccine to eradicate polio from the world, and that was a vaccine discovered in the 1950s and is an, e- is an easy oral drop that goes in your mouth. There is a lot that has to happen in planning and everything else to make this move. And we don't have our Operation Warp Speed for all the other components. Testing, uh, tracing, uh, manufacturing enough uh, protective equipment. Hospitals are still running short of protective equipment and nursing homes have never been fully supplied. So um, it's a, uh, it, I, I'm, I, I'm optimistic about what's gonna happen with vaccines, but you need all the components. We're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. One of the reasons I love your writing so much is that you have a holistic approach to medicine. Um, and, um, uh, you know, we, we're very tough as we should be on the need to be disciplined here. But we're asking a lot of people as well to suspend their lives, many people to lose their jobs, their businesses. What, what are the mental health costs of uh of that, and I mean, the, one of the reasons the president's behaving the way he is is because he understands that there's sacrifice involved here, and it's not pleasant if you're a politician running for re-election to ask people to make those kinds of big sacrifices. Yeah, I mean, my mother has been more or less in solitary confinement for the last three months at 83 in a senior living community in, in independent living, and and it's been brutally brutal, just brutal, right? And 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 I think at this point. We have to break those people out of solitary confinement. We do know how to not be locked down. Um, the formula that we described, we can do distancing, we can do um, uh, hygiene, and we can do masks, and we can test, you know, ask everybody every day if they have symptoms and make sure you get a test if you have a flu-like symptom or a cold, cold symptom. That, that works, and that will break people out of confinement and allow us to do many of the things we want to be doing. But if you, if you don't do that, then, then you just, you get disaster. So, you know, I think we still, like if at this moment we took seriously the, the formula, the recipe, and began rolling it, you could have uh, enormously more uh, economic activity. If you strengthen testing on top of that, um, where uh, I have an article out in the Harvard's, Harvard Business Review about how we can get the price of testing down and, uh, and have it much more widely distributed so that, um, you know, you could, every nursing home should have all of the staff being tested, but we still don't have that capability. But, you know, cheap, widespread testing would also enable my mom and her community to have dinners together once you know who's negative and who's not. Like there's, there's some simple things that are starting to break people out. Already, family is now starting to visit, you know, for her. You can have two people visiting at once outdoors with social distancing and masks. 
Like, we can be more humane than we've been, but the mental toll here is substantial, especially while you're completely locked down. You mentioned your mom. I want to talk a little bit about your journey. I'd love to talk a lot about it but uh, <laughs> because it's just so interesting. But your folks, uh, both doctors, both raised in India, came here to further their medical training, and they had a plan to go back, and you foiled the plan. <laughs> I did. Um, yeah, my, my parents, you know, uh, like a lot of um, – Indian doctors came to places like the United States and the UK and got to have their medical training here as residents. My mom's a pediatrician. My father was a surgeon. And uh, they met in New York City, set up on a blind date. They're from different parts of India and planned to return to the um, community near where my dad had grown up in India. And then I, you know, you, smallpox was the scourge still in that day. Um, and uh, I uh, had a bad reaction to the smallpox vaccine. Um, I had a rare complication from it. And uh, as a consequence, I couldn't get the full set of shots that allowed me to travel. In fact, I really couldn't go to most of the world. And, uh, and so my parents ended up uh, choosing to stay here, uh, wanted to be uh, in a place that my dad's from a small village and he wanted to be in a a small town like the kinds of places he was more comfortable with than in New York City where they did their training. And, uh, and so we ended up in a small town in Ohio, Athens, Athens, Ohio, southeastern Ohio in Appalachia. Home of Ohio University. Home of the Ohio University Bobcats. And, yes. uh, and, uh, and a place where, um, you know, my mother saw the Medicaid, uh, the kids on Medicaid and, you know, the uninsured, which were, the, you know, as many as a third could, were uninsured at, at, uh, at times along the way. Um, learned a lot about uh, living and growing up in a place that had a thriving college, but also was a former mining town where uh, in the county that had all shut down. You know, I was interested, your, 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 your parents were Hindu. That's how you were raised. But you were, they gave you dispensation to <laughs> eat that you weren't a vegetarian and you said somewhere that they wanted you to do that so that you would fit in as Americans. That interested me uh, a lot. I mean, Athens is, is, is still, to this day, uh, overwhelmingly white. Asian population is relatively small. And tell me about that, about the desire to fit in. I know your father ended up running the Rotarians there, so mm -hmm. he found a way. And then my mom, once the, the law... Once the Supreme Court allowed, uh, required Rotary to accept women, she became president of the Rotary as well. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, uh, they were, you know, extremely active in the community, built a community also of, of uh, Indian, uh, the, the, the few Indians sort of in the surrounding area. We actually had, had a kind of temple in our house where we would pray. Um, uh, but I... Uh, you know, I just desperately wanted to fit in. I wanted to, uh, to be like uh, everybody else and, and uh, in the community and, and had a hard time navigating that, not, not knowing exactly where, where I fit in. Um, but, you know, my parents uh, let me eat beef, but they didn't eat beef. They, um, and, and we had all the usual kind of immigrant conflicts about whether I could date and whether I could go to the parties I wanted to. And, you know, I, I, I did all of the 
things that parents weren't always happy about <laughs> and, um, and found my way along. But I was always a little bit of a fish out of water. I mean, I knew I was going to get to go to college and about half of my school didn't go to college. I knew that it wouldn't uh, likely just be our local uh, university. I had options and opportunities because my parents were both doctors. We were probably the wealthiest people in town. We had the one Mercedes I'd ever seen. Like, you know, I was, I was different in so many ways. I was nerdy. I was Indian. I was, um, our family was rich. We, uh, I was gonna, I had opportunities like no one else had. Now, I get the sense just reading between the lines that it was sort of expected that you would be a doctor, that it was expected within your family that you'd be a doctor. And it looks like you worked pretty hard to delay that <laughs> moment because you went off and did a Rhodes Scholarship. You worked in politics. We'll talk about that in a second. Was that just assumed that you would go into medicine? You know, I don't think I ever heard my parents say, you should go, you're going to go into medicine. And yet it was very clear to me that that was uh, a kind of expectation. It was the, you know, the professional path in medicine was a safe and a known path to my parents. And that made me, of course, just like dating and drinking in high school and all those things, want to rebel against it. Um, I, my, my version of rebellion was to, you know, get to go off to California, to Stanford, to college, and do everything from writing to, I worked uh, back in those days on Gary Hart's campaign, uh, ah, yes. believe it or not. And, um, and, you know, came home with my girlfriend from Stanford. The uh, part of that pathway was uh, finding that I was, I did a dual degree. I did, did it in biology. So, you know, I was headed, one path was going in that direction. And then the other path was I majored in political science and did my degree at Oxford in politics, philosophy, and economics. And then uh, because Kathleen, my girlfriend from Stanford, had taken a job in D.C., I deferred medical school. Uh, I'd been admitted to Harvard, and I deferred medical school. And that freaked my parents out. Like, what are you doing? You already deferred for two years <laughs> to do this degree in philosophy. We never understood why you were doing. And and now, what? You're you're going to work for – you're going to work on, on the Hill. I went to work on the Hill for a guy named Jim Cooper of Tennessee. Yeah. Uh, and uh, as a legislative aide on uh, on health care and, and, uh, and social policy. And uh, it was fantastic as an experience. It kept me – near Kathleen and, uh, and, and it shaped a lot along the way, but I was always looking for that place that ironically they raised me with, which is care about the community you're in. You are lucky a tool. You have been given enormous advantages. Use them to make sure we're doing good. You, uh, you mentioned your service with Jim Cooper at a young age. One of the things that you worked on was the National Health Service Corps to yeah. try and bring doctors to rural areas. This seems to be an even more emergent situation now. I mean, rural areas are less populous, but they're also hospitals are closing. There are counties, whole counties that don't have doctors. Give me your, your, your very quick appraisal of where we are and what we need to do. Well, I... Rural communities are among the most vulnerable communities in the United States. I knew growing up in my hometown what a difference it would make 
from programs like the National Health Service Corps where you get service from physicians for a couple of years coming to those communities because a ton of doctors in that community came from the National Health Service Corps and ended up staying because of uh, that assignment there. You know, once you're there, you, you, you become ensconced and that has you uh, uh, living and working there. But at the larger level, what we also recognize is that um, specialty capabilities, uh, access to technology and resources are making it so you can't replicate the thousands of different kinds of services in every town across the country. And we're, we're needing to have it so there's a kind of, you know, we finally actually get a, a system of healthcare. And that system needs tremendous primary care on the ground level. And primary care means a regular source of, of care for your needs and goals. Um, and if you can afford your needed medications and treatments, you can live that average 80 plus years or longer. And then you need to be connected into the system where specialty care and services um, can be provided in, in waves that you know, go out to the bigger cities, but also is increasingly online with digital solutions, whether it's mental health care, um, uh, some specialized care that is increasingly available in those ways. I, I remember the big change as you know, a highway got built to Columbus that cut the drive time from almost two hours to about an hour and 15 minutes. And, uh, and people started going to the hospital there for their heart care, for their kidney care, and other things like that. And my father's practice, he was a urologist adapted to saying, okay, I'm going to do the, the more, the less intensive things, but, you know, prostatectomies were going to be better done by somebody who does 100 of them a year. Mm-hmm. And those went to Columbus and he sent them up there after a while. And those changes are part of what we need. You, you became a spokesperson or a briefer for Hillary Clinton's health care reform commission uh, back in 93 and you gave briefings in the Roosevelt Room and so on to the consternation of people who wondered who you were and why you were <laughs> there, you, you've written and said. Tell me about that experience, first of all, as a young person. You, I guess, just finished with your basic training as a physician and in both public health and in, in medicine. That must have been a heady experience to find yourself standing there 10 yards from the Oval Office briefing on this issue. Yeah, I mean... Um the uh, first of all, I was not qualified. <laughs> I, I was midway through medical school. I had not done any public health degree, but I'd been, you know, they, as you know, young people in politics and then in government have an unusual role where you can learn a lot and gain a lot of responsibility, sometimes totally out of proportion to what you maybe should. Yes. Um, and what you have to be really good at is um, not thinking you have the answer, but synthesizing and laying out the arguments for someone who, whether it was the Governor Clinton on the campaign or President Clinton in the White House, um, who has no, you have to lay out decisions in a way that they can follow and understand the issues, make a decision when they don't have enough time. And uh, the the incredible heady experience of this signature initiative that was also rapidly devolving into chaos, um, having, uh, you know, I had a role on leading the task force on the benefit package, uh, being a part of the task force on the financing uh, component, um, and you know needing to suddenly do a Saturday night briefing on will we include uh, abortion coverage 
in the, in the package or not. And there's the political considerations of what the votes are. There is the um, ethical considerations. There are the practical and regulatory considerations and the legal considerations. Um, and it is, uh, you know, it's certainly heady. Uh, it was uh, daunting and, uh, and both exhilarating and frustrating. I think I liked the, um, the importance of the ideas in getting things right and having that opportunity to make a difference. And what I hated was people who even agreed with me would, you know, leak something about me to the press so that I'd be kicked out of running the Roosevelt Room briefing. You know, just the, the, the hand-to-hand combat, the hand-to-hand combat. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. You had said somewhere that you didn't think of yourself as all that good a writer, which is stunning to me because I'm so I so admire your writing. You're you're a brilliant writer and a brilliant narrative writer, which is a hard thing for a doctor uh, or a scientist, you know. But you you capture humanity very well, and you notice maybe it is endemic to being a doctor that you notice small things, but you also know small things that say a lot uh, about a person, and that's a writer's gift. What caused you to turn to writing? Was this another escape route yeah. from medicine, or? Well, um, first of all, I think uh, I'm—I feel like I'm the prime example that uh, that you you are not necessarily born to be a writer or an artist, um, uh, because I certainly wasn't. I had my worst uh, grades in writing in college. Um, I. Uh, didn't know what I wanted to say, and I didn't know how to say it. And the best opportunity I got was, number one, in places like uh, working in the campaign in the White House, being at Oxford studying philosophy, I had to again and again refine the ability to construct an argument. And just, I was terrible at it. And there's nothing more embarrassing at Oxford than you would have to read your essay out loud. And my professor would stop me after about 10 minutes saying, I just can't stand it. This is a piece of garbage. You got you to gotta work on this. And it became my whole goal after a year to get through reading an essay out loud and having the professor not sh- shut it down. And uh, one friend from Oxford, Jake Weisberg, who was uh, one of the people who started Slate magazine, it was 1996. So it was Netscape Navigator days. People were not writing for the internet. Slate was one of the earliest magazines. And Jake asked if I would write um, something for, the, for, for Slate because uh, at that time you only had a few hundred hits, as, you know, as we used to call it at that time, and uh, mostly my family. <laughs> and, um, uh, and they were riding the wave of this becoming a play. We didn't even have the word blog, but I was essentially doing a blog for, for Slate. And... Um, and that became a great learning place, right? You had a very low bar to entry, which is the wonderful thing about the internet. But I had editors like Jacob and Michael Kinsley and Jack Schaefer and, you know, and others 
who would, um, uh, I remember Jody Allen spent a ton of time with me, who would be great editors. And a great editor is a coach. They'll tell you, this is what you're doing well. This is what you're not doing well. Now rewrite it. This argument, I'm, that makes no sense to me. you know. And they make you think. And so over about uh, two and a half years, three years, I wrote about 30 sort of extended columns. And, uh, and, and I got better. I got better from practice. It's like doing 30 gallbladders in a row. I did 30 <laughs> columns. And eventually, they just got better. Um, and then the New Yorker asked if I would, you know, I got an opportunity to, uh, a friend tipped me off that, that, uh, that they, there was an editor at the New Yorker who was following my column in Slate. So I wrote to him and said, hey, I've got an idea for a longer thing. And, uh, and a couple of articles later, they uh, let me join the staff of the New Yorker while I was um, still a resident. And, you know, that's just an incredible opportunity. Yeah, kind of freaked out the folks at, at your hospital in uh, Boston, however, because part of what makes your work so incisive is that you are capable of very, very intense self-evaluation. You're very honest about not just the triumphs of medicine, but the failings of medicine, including your own. Uh, I read that at some point, communications folks at your hospitals wanted to pass on your pieces before you publish them, which of course is a non-starter. But um, so balancing your two careers must have been a challenge in that regard. You know, this is where leadership comes in. Uh, I had a chief of surgery who, uh, you know, I'm a second year resident and I'm coming to them saying, hey, I've written this article about a patient that I nearly killed because of a mistake. <laughs> it's going to be called How Doctors Make Mistakes. And, <laughs> and it's going to... You dis- could see where they might be nervous. Yeah. And, uh, the, you know, the New Yorker says, no one can look at it. Can I publish it? And my chief of surgery, I'm a second year resident, right? Uh, my chief of surgery says, look, the PR department has a real hard time with this. They want you to read it. I cut a deal with them. Uh, I said, I will read it and give the feedback. And, uh, and he said, so here's the deal. I told him that, but you don't have to show it to me. And then he said, Harvard's a big place. And if you go down in flames, we'll still be standing. <laughs> uh-huh. And that's all I've ever needed. I feel like that's all anybody's ever needed is just let, you know, let them give them a match and let them, let them see what they can start. And, uh, and, uh, you know, that opportunity would normally not happen. Uh, I just was very lucky to be in a place where it could. As I think I've, I told you once when you visited uh, the university and visited the Institute of Politics, um, you, and I think you know this, uh, the piece you wrote for The New Yorker in 2009 called uh, The Cost Conundrum was required reading per the President of the United States in the White House, he circulated that piece among all his senior staff. And the piece focused on why healthcare in McAllen, Texas, and El Paso, Texas, two communities that were fairly close, had similar demographics, were so variant in terms of the cost. This discussion sort of animated a lot of the discussions around the Affordable Care Act. Uh, the Affordable Care Act was, was passed and it has endured despite uh, many attempts to get rid of it by the current administration. It's before the Supreme Court now. How would you evaluate it, and what needs to be done now? Uh, 
what steps, assuming that you had the power to say, here's what we are going to do next, how would you improve the Affordable Care Act or would you dispense with it and and go with an entirely different model? Well, the first measure in my mind is, have we actually improved people's lives? And the evidence on that is unequivocal. So the Affordable Care Act still has 20 million people uninsured, but um, it improved coverage uh, for 30 million plus people, right? Um, The consequence of that, which we've seen and now measured in a variety of interesting ways, um, has, has been a substantial improvement in your likelihood of survival to the tune of thousands of people who lived who wouldn't have. Um, it improved the likelihood that people would get their mental health care, would get their chronic illness care, would get hospital care, would get surgical care, every dimension. Improved the likelihood you'd have emergency care. Some Democrats had said, you know, emergency use would go down. Actually, emergency use went up. Um, in year one and two, there was no evidence of any mortality benefit. There was substantial evidence of financial benefit. It was um, one. It, it was uh, the single most important driver to reducing bankruptcies. Uh, however, um, it turns out this is a reflection of the importance of chronic illness in our lives, that as we live longer um, and get our treatments for our heart disease or our lung disease or our HIV or other things, by five years, you live longer. Um, And the improvements in survival were significant. Um, Now, the financial benefits when you have, on average, deductibles in the over $2,000 level um, are uh, are still a a problem, uh, a very big problem. The Medicaid portion of the um, of it, most of the expansion was in Medicaid, and that's the group that benefited the most. And I think that um, part of that story was many people picking up Medicaid had really no access to care in, at all. And some of it is that the financial benefits of Medicaid, you have no deductible, you have no copay, you have no premiums. Um, and that puts people in a different place when they're uh, – working class and and has not been able to access care. Um, so what's the problem? Uh, we are still in a fragmented and broken healthcare system. Uh, we don't have good measures of getting cost discipline. We have some things that were adopted that improve the um, the accountability of healthcare for the, for its costs, but we're a long way to go on driving that forward. Would you build on the on that platform? Can you see the path forward there? I I don't think we have any choice except to build on some platform that we have. Um, I can see us building on the, uh, on that exchange platform. Um, That would, you know, basically building on the ACA would be two things. You'd, you'd expand Medicaid so that people who are out of work all get Medicaid and you would um, make a, a public option that could be a Medicaid buy-in or a Medicare buy-in that would give people an option on the exchange to come into those kinds of programs or pick up um, uh, or pick up privately based insurance. It's kind of like how we run the Medicare Medicare right. Medicare is a, a, um, closing in on half of the population get private uh, Medicare Advantage plans, and about half get um, the uh, public program, the fee for service system, and it has been uh, more cost effective. And you have actual substantial innovation going on 
uh, in the portions of Medicare where you have um, access to the private sector as well. So I would I would build on I would build on that kind of a platform that you know that really I mean essentially what I'm saying is there is a kind of Medicare for all pathway here. Um, the Obama combination of Medicaid plus the exchange is a lot like the combination we've built for the over 65 with a uh, with the fee for service Medicare program and Medicare Advantage. That's a that's assuming, of course, that the Supreme Court doesn't throw the whole program out, which it may. I mean, we they'll be they've postponed uh, arguments till the fall. They'll make a decision probably after the election, but that could be the conundrum that a President Biden, if he were to be elected, uh, will face. Yeah, I will be shocked if they do because the case, from what I've been able to understand on the legal merits, doesn't stand up. Um, but, uh, let's say they did, um, you know, then that would simply force and accelerate the need to, um, advance the, the, the way you fix that problem is they, they, they say, well, Congress did not say that this program can exist (laughs) because the, the mandate got stripped out. Well, you can pass a law that, that stands the Obamacare program, uh, back up again and keeps it going. You could um, you could decide to replace it, or you could decide to have a hodgepodge of uh, various things moving forward, which is of course the American way. And in all likelihood, we will, uh, under that pressure, um, just have to move all that much faster to keeping that system evolving. If the court overturned the ACA, um, it just moves us down that road. Uh, of needing to look at the transformation of the healthcare system that much faster. Um, the reality of that bill is you can affirm what we have as the infrastructure of the ACA. You could decide that that means that you know we should be trying to move towards a Medicare for all. Um, the the big problem there is just the politics of um, we we don't have uh, sixty votes for anything, <laughs> and uh, and I think that. Um, even if the Democrats take uh, uh, the Senate, which is still uh, a real dicey proposition from what I understand, um, the uh, reality is going to be that passing anything requires Republicans to come on board, and that has been brutal. If they maintain the filibuster, and that will be a big debate as to whether the filibuster survives the debate has already begun so uh we'll we'll see about that listen i have to ask you you're just looking over your history because in addition to being a world-class writer and you've written four brilliant books the last of which being mortal uh, was a sensational book I, i happened to read it just after my mother had passed away she chose at the end of her life she was in hospice her doctor told her she couldn't go on Told her if she didn't take her medication, you know, she'd probably die in four days, but he couldn't help her. She had to make her own decisions. He couldn't stop her from not doing it. Maybe some of the richest four days of the last part of her life because she had made that decision. She was happy with it, and we all were together, and there was a lot of reminiscing. She looked around her apartment and started, in typical fashion, telling us who was going to get what. Who should take this rug? Who should take that picture? 
but it was really an amazing thing. So your book meant a lot to me. But my point is this. You were involved in not only teaching at Harvard, not only your surgery, not only your writing. You run a lab to test public health system ideas. You uh, you run a uh, not-for-profit around surgical techniques. You, for two years, served as the uh, CEO of Haven, which was a group that CEOs of Amazon and J.P. Morgan and uh, Berkshire Hathaway put yes. together. You're now the chairman of that. Like, how do you do this, my friend? We, we all want to know, like, how many of there are you, <laughs> and how do you function? Well, you're awesome. I, I have been really lucky to find that um, I've learned how to put teams together and people who are willing to all share the same priorities um, and pull together in the same direction can can do a lot and uh, and I've and I to my surprise I just love that I love that opportunity to take an idea for people to all come around it and then pull together and make it happen. And so I find myself starting things um, again and again, but I'm also had to learn the discipline of um, you need to get it done. And that means that I may seem like I'm doing a lot of things at once, but I almost never am. Um, I am usually predominantly focused on getting one thing done, making sure it gets out the door and then there's always a kind of pace to it where things um, uh, are needing time to move and come together. And, and at those moments when you've set it in motion, I usually cause more trouble than help by interfering for too long. And it's better to distract me with the next thing, <laughs> whether it's a writing project or something I'm working on uh, in, uh, in, in another nonprofit space. What is the next thing? You, you, I saw somewhere that you, 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 you threw out a, a number eight to twelve books or something. <laughs> if you, at the end of your life, if you had accomplished that, and you had a, a number of other goals, um, do you have another book in the works? I don't right now, actually, because of uh, first putting in the last couple of years to get Haven stood up, and. Um, uh, and then in the pandemic, finding that I wanted to put a lot more time into writing for The New Yorker uh, about what's happening here and um, contributing to uh, whether it's our, some of our local or, or national or even some of the international uh, rollout around coronavirus. So right now, I think the next six months for me is very much focused on coronavirus. I'm um, uh, particularly focused on, you know, I think we're doing better around masks. I think we're learning the story to, to work on there. But testing has really not succeeded. And I'm now working on trying to um, figure out locally how we can make testing happen at much larger scale and get the cost lower. And if my theories are right, then that might provide grounds for how we could do that more widely. Talk to me a little bit about what Think 20 years ahead. Where do you hope we'll be with our healthcare system? I weirdly think about this a lot. <laughs> um, and what it boils down to me is this recognition that in the last century, we have dramatically changed the experience of being human. You as a human being around 1900 
uh, really had no idea how long your life would really be. The average American only lived into your mid-40s. And you had as much a likelihood of dying of a throat infection in your teens as you did uh, of dying at 65 from a heart attack. Um, you just felt lucky for every day that you got. And now we're in a place where the average person can live 80 years or more if you have a regular source of care and access to the, to the treatment and, uh, and opportunities that are there for you. And, um, and that means we will spend the majority of our lives um, living with one or another form of chronic illness. And, and I think that transforms what the healthcare system is about. Um, the healthcare system, about, we, we, all our metaphors about the healthcare system is about rescue. You're going to be saved, your life is going to be saved because you're going to have penicillin or you're going to have uh, the right surgery or whatever. And instead, what is, it is much more like is a continual management of the reality of the frailty of your body. And that means you need a system where every day um, you have a partner in your physician and in your healthcare system who will help you achieve your priorities and goals um, without just making your life entirely about your safety and survival. It's about uh, medicine has to be about how you can succeed in contributing your potential and in doing what gives you meaning in your life and then, uh, and then deliver the capabilities to make that possible. We spend about a third of our spending on healthcare on things that don't actually add value, don't improve your life in significant ways. And 20 years from now, we will have much better data about how to make that work. And you will have you know, more meaningful partnerships rather than just a sense of a, of a glob in the healthcare system that you don't even know how to navigate your way through. Um, I think we'll have a, we, we need to have a system that can work that way. So we all have our shot at that at that 80 plus years with a, with a good life along the way. Well, you have been a beacon in this cause. And uh, if we get there, we will get there in part because of the bright light that you've shined on this subject. So awesome. thank you. Thank you, David. Always great to be with you, Atul Gawande. We will be reading your account in The New Yorker in these next critical months and hope to have many conversations in the future. Look forward to it. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 